0: The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Wednesday, February 26th, 2020 from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The chaos in Charleston. The South Carolina Shout Fest. But will it be the face palmetto state for Bloomberg after he was lost and aimless in Las Vegas? No. No, it will not be. Nor will it destroy frontrunner Bernie Sanders, although he is likely to get fewer delegates out of South Carolina than Joe Biden is. Notice I didn't say he will win or lose a state. And by... Avoiding that phraseology, I admit, I surrender a sizzling yet misleading bit of drama. That is why I topped the pack of this show with all those pizzazz-filled phrases. Just because I know there was going to be a huge letdown when I refused to inaccurately say win South Carolina or lose South Carolina or any state that awards delegates proportionally, which is to say all of them in the Democratic primary. Later in the show, I will do a fuller accounting of the arguments put forward in this debate. But let's play politics. As I admit, I don't know any more than you do or than conventional wisdom does or than the campaigns themselves do. And what they forecast is that Joe Biden probably will come out on top on Saturday, especially after Jim Clyburn endorsed him this afternoon. So it wasn't a great debate for Bernie Sanders, especially because he took flack from all comers. But it wasn't especially bad. That said, it was more watched than any debate this cycle other than the last one in Las Vegas, so maybe Bernie's B- minus performance times 13 million viewers, plus South Carolina being the first state where he doesn't get the most delegates, or almost the most delegates, in Iowa he got 12 to Buttigieg's 13, maybe that all adds up to slow his roll. Then again, Bernie's roll is not so easily slowed. Let's go on to... Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren actually laid out a clear, understandable, cogent case against Bernie. It's a case I agree with. Here it is.
1: Getting a progressive agenda enacted is going to be really hard, and it's going to take someone who digs into the details to make it happen. Bernie and I both wanted to help rein in Wall Street. In 2008, we both got our chance. But I dug in, I fought the big banks, I built the coalitions, and I won. Bernie and I both want to see universal health care, but Bernie's plan doesn't explain how to get there, doesn't show how we're going to get enough allies into it, and doesn't show enough about how we're going to pay for it. I dug in. And then, having put that out there in a calm,
0: cool manner, she proceeded to turn every bit of her attention to Michael Bloomberg and none whatsoever to Bernie ever again. She stopped articulating the case against Sanders. Now, I know why she did this. It is where her passion lays, and it worked last time. It worked at least to raise money, but it didn't work quite as well this time. For one, Bloomberg was better prepared, and for another, he realized that debates can be won on their own limitations. For example, some hard-to-explain statement from years ago? Don't try to explain. Just deny it ever happened. At
1: least I didn't have a boss who said to me, kill it the way that Mayor I Bloomberg never said that. have said okay. to one of his oh, on. pregnant employees. People want a chance that- to hear. People want a chance you, to Senator. hear from I, the women who I have I never worked. said that. I, I, I want to and allow and the mayor for the record, if she was a teacher in New York City, she would never have had that problem. We treated our teachers the right way. And no. the unions will tell you exactly that.
0: Yes, perhaps you've not heard of the Michael Bloomberg forced sterilization of teacher program. Now, what he was saying is that New York City had good unions, which, by the way, (laughs) were were Bloomberg's bane of existence. And he once compared him to the NRA, no matter, because he might not win the moral high ground with Warren, but he won that portion of the debate. And she wasted her time trying to elevate her status by mostly ignoring the front runner. There's one other Warren exchange with Bloomberg or non-exchange that I want to highlight. And here that is.
1: In 2016, he dumped $12 million into the Pennsylvania Senate race to help reelect an anti-choice right-wing Republican senator. And I just want to say, the woman challenger was terrific. She lost by a single point. In 2012, he scooped in to try to defend another Republican senator against a woman challenger. That was me. It didn't work, but he tried hard. So,
0: by the way, that explains to some extent why Warren was so focused on the guy who is a distant second or third in most national polls. Payback. But Bloomberg, for his part, never even bothered to explain why he donated to Pat Toomey, that's the Pennsylvania senator, or Scott Brown, who is Warren's Republican opponent. But the answer happens to be a good one. Guns, gun policy, strategy, in stamping out gun crime in America. See, Toomey supported background checks and Brown opposed concealed carry reciprocity, right? That's Arkansas passes a law and now New York has to follow it and someone can walk around with their gun uh, tucked into their waistband. The theory is that if you want to counter the NRA, you can't do it by only giving money to Democrats. You have to support everyone who favors gun control. You have to put out the message that you can rebut the NRA and not have empty coffers come election time. Now, to be extremely fair, guns weren't maybe the only reason why the billionaire Bloomberg opposed the candidacy of one of Wall Street's biggest critics, Elizabeth Warren, but it was at least worth articulating, and Bloomberg didn't. That said, his debate was fine. It had missed opportunities and a couple bad clunkers, but it wasn't last week's debate in which he brought gasoline and charcoal to his own bonfire. These weren't the only parts of the debate that bear scrutiny, and luckily for that, I have an institution known as the Spiel. Stay tuned. But first, political hobbyism is the idea that while Americans say they're interested in politics as civic duty, they're really interested in politics as entertainment. Taking in political content serves the viewers or podcast listeners' emotional needs, but not the country's policy needs. Like people who identify as spiritual but not religious, or sports fans who think the Astros care about them, political hobbyists are kidding themselves when it comes to their impact on elections. This is the theory of Tufts political science professor Aton Hirsch. He is here now to discuss his book, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H A are, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a friend who can tell you what's the bellwether county in Arizona so that you know on election day where that state may be headed, who can tell you which of the suburbs of Philadelphia are key for the national election, who could tell you where the Mahonic Valley in Ohio is leaning this time around. But if you ask him, that's great. Where's your local polling place? He would say, oh, I think they changed it. Probably a gym. He is typical. It's not me. I'm not the friend. He is typical of the phenomenon that Eton Hirsch writes about in his new book, Politics is for Power, how to move beyond political hobbyism, take action, and make real change. And that phenomenon is there in the subtitle, hobbyism. Eton Hirsch is a professor at Tufts and is the author. Of his last book was Hacking the Election, which I want to ask him about too. Hello, Eton. Thanks Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So this book, Politics for Power is a good title, but it's not really as descriptive as something like... Political hobbyism is a waste of time. Now, that wouldn't have sold as many books... But that is the main gist of the book. You tell affirming stories of people who really get into politics and don't care so much about signaling on Facebook, but it is a scathing critique of the phenomenon of people who are just mainlining MSNBC and telling themselves they're doing something in terms of civics. That's right. And by the way,
2: that title, Politics
0: is Your Power, the power part actually pits some people off. Like, uh-huh. it's yeah. the hobbyist
2: yeah. stuff, like, ugh, power, I don't know if I want that. It's a little scary. I just want to kind of do something from
0: my couch that's not going to bother anybody, and like yes, but the that. thing they want not to bother anybody is is sometimes you know scathing, flaming critiques on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, but they don't have to face those people. That's true. So hobbyism, you look at the uh, history of it, and you do. I think rightly ask, well, is it even worse than before? Has it become worse than it ever was? People have always been into politics and people have always been news junkies. So why and what facts do you point to that would indicate it's gotten worse? Hobbyism.
2: Okay. So first of all, it just a number of people who say they're like interested in politics. We're at an all time high for that. The National Election Studies, this big survey, it's been going since the 50s. It always asks how interested you are in elections. So far, they haven't done the 2020 study yet, obviously, but 2016 was the peak. Before 2016, no one's been as interested in politics is interesting election and yet if you look at measures of volunteer engagement it's below historical averages yeah so, so in 2016
0: four percent of people volunteered for a political race in 1964 it was 17 percent.
2: yeah by the way four percent is the one who said they did like yeah. probably you know, oh yeah
0: two-thirds of them were lying yeah now, does attending a rally, does that count as something other than hobbyism? No, the 4% is like attending a meeting, volunteering
2: for a candidate, that kind of stuff. It's very hard to measure this stuff because actually people do lie frequently about this. But you know, even if you just ask people, you, know, you ask the daily news consumers today, are they members of organizations? Most say zero. Have they attended a meeting? Most say zero in the last year. Mm-hmm. Or have they worked with others to solve some community problem? Most say zero. So, and these are the people who are following the news the most. Yeah. So we have this phenomenon has it grown over time. Well, it looks like we're th- this ratio of like kind of interest, emotional intellectual engagement to real engagement is definitely like way out of whack compared to the past. And then there's, you know, obviously some rationales for why that's happened. The most obvious is technology.
0: Like it's easier than ever to feel that connection to politics without leaving your couch. So you also interrogate okay, academic term, the idea because there is this idea all right, maybe being active online is a gateway to actual activism and you don't just argue I don't think that's true there's some data to back it up. so what how'd you look into that?
2: Yeah, so first of all, I mean, it's not true for most people. You know, in some ways, the book goes back and forth between analytical view and then this, you know, there's like a how-to in the title. And I want each person to kind of reflect as a reader, like, are they someone for whom slacktivism or hobbyism is a gateway or isn't it? So, you know, you take something like the Women's March, which is this very big march. And for some small group of people, this was a, a real gateway into real organizing. They met people, they got signed up for something. But for the vast majority of people, it wasn't, right? It wasn't. That was in some ways the end instead of the means to an end. And that's end versus means to an end is a useful way to think about that. So for hobbyism, for hobbyists, the emotional kind of catharsis you get out of online engagement or
0: participating in rally, that is the goal. That's, that's why you're doing it, to feel that connection. You might not know it's a goal. You might not tell yourself that's a goal, but that's the goal. Because once you're satiated and once those particular brand of endorphins kick in, you're fine and you don't need to take the next step.
2: That's right. But in real kind of political activity, that's you know, people who are working with, in groups with strategies and goals to influence politics, they think about emotion differently. They think about it as a means, like righteous anger gets people in the room mm-hmm. so they can do something else. So, you know, it's the first step. And I think what's happening in hobbyism today is that
0: it's just the first The first step is the last step. Right. So one of the distinctions you make is why isn't gambling or drinking a hobby? Why is Why are vices not a hobby? And the answer is what? Well, generally, they're not like socially sanctioned things. Like we kind of are embarrassed about those things. So that's why. So. I was thinking about this, because what you do to make something like drinking a hobby is you add some measure of sophistication or knowledge, right? You add some, oh, I'm not uh, a drunkard. I'm a beer aficionado, right? right, A whiskey connoisseur. Exactly. I'm a connoisseur. So the version of that in politics, right, to turn it into a hobby is the person who is watching all this MSNBC and doesn't realize they're engaged in a hobby. I mean, it's essentially a vice, is my point. But you've injected the sheen of sophistication. Oh, I'm so involved in the details of the Mueller investigation, therefore it's an acceptable hobby. But it really is not that much more than a vice. in yeah, some Yeah, I mean, senses. look, I think, you know, I want to be a little bit
2: careful because I think it comes from a, a very positive place in people's hearts. They care about politics. That's why they're paying attention because they they worry things are going wrong. But you're right that eventually it often becomes for people like, let me do a deep dive into the rules of the Iowa caucuses. And you're like, oh, but that's, you know, is that really channeling the energy that you have and the care that you have to something productive? You know, I think obviously there's a lot of media that's channeling our energy that way towards the kind of the... Creating a drama or a sports out of politics, but um, it's different than than drinking in that sense. That I think
0: people come from it from a a good and civic place. If you're and you got to realize, if you're not doing it, if the individual is not doing the organizing, the KKK is they're doing opioid outreach.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I mean, on the political extremes, both in this country and other countries, we see groups who figure out how to way to build power. And it's not what you might think. They're not just selling ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, I I use the example that you just gave of the KKK in the book, because the KKK is not going around just saying, we are white supremacists, come join us. They're saying, hey, do you have an opioid problem? You have an addiction problem? We're here to help you. How can we help you? And when people, I think, hear that story, they have this like, oh man, they have this moment like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. They actually really have a strategy here. Yeah,
0: now people might say that sounds good and I don't want to think of myself as a hobbyist. This is a chance for you to, address the defensive hobbyist who might be denying that they're a hobbyist. But listen, if I want to get involved in politics, I live in a blue state. I live in a or I live in a red state. Most likely I live in a blue state. I know exactly how the vote is going or there's essentially a machine. There's no way I'm going to be able to puncture the, you know, in New York here the Cuomo machine for governor. Is there really a point? Is this is my time really well spent trying to canvass for the Democratic Party in Brooklyn, they're going to win it anyway. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, if you look at issues,
2: a lot of Democrats say will say like their big issues are the environment or they'll say like it's racial equality, things like that. There are a heck of a lot of things you could do on those issues in your community about which your neighbors and you will disagree. And, I mean, I think this is one thing that you notice whenever you kind of get engaged in politics at a local level. It's like, you know, there might be a neighborhood that's all Democrats or all Republicans. But on any one issue, there's a whole lot of disagreement when it comes to, like, you know, the actual trade-offs between, say, home values and economic development versus the environment. You know, when those things are actually real, then there's some convincing to do. So, you know, if you actually care about those values, not in just a way that's, like, so easy to say, you know, I want some giant national, international change, but I actually want to do something myself, then you're buying into the fact that politics is messy and that people disagree with one another. The other thing I'll say is that I have some work with political science colleague Bernard Fraga, where we kind of measured competitiveness in elections. Mm -hmm. And within about four election cycles, almost everywhere in the country, almost everyone in the country has a D versus R, Democrat versus Republican, close election. In the book, I talk about this example in Massachusetts, where we have had close gubernatorial elections. We now have a very popular Republican governor in -hmm. a a Democratic state. We had not that long ago, Scott Brown, a Republican senator, win this really critical election and a special election for Senate. So, you know, you go to the bluest- And then
0: lose to a woman named Elizabeth Warren.
2: That's right. (laughs) Um, Obviously, Alabama just had a a massive upset of an Mm -hmm. election not that long ago. Actually, every state has these things. And so- It might not be tomorrow, but the whole point of building political power is to make it durable. And, you know, in ways that we're engaging, like some people say, like, I can't, I can't focus on anything beyond 2020 or anything beyond the primary. And and a few months ago, they would say, I can't think of anything but the impeachment trial before that, anything but the Mueller report. And you, of course, if you just live your life <laughs> like one crisis moment to the other, then yeah, you're going to not be able to do very much of anything.
0: Is it easier to become active and involved if you are on the more progressive liberal side of things, if you're a Democrat or the more Tea party? conservative, right-wing side of things. Is, is it harder for a moderate to be active and organize in that direction? Well, I mean,
2: I think that a few things. First of all, the political parties, because of how they've transformed in the last few years, it feels more comfortable to be in those spaces sometimes if you do have extreme views. But... Beyond that, I think that if you have those extreme views, what's, what's happening is you really care a lot. You're saying like, oh, like
0: politics is so far from where it needs to be. We have a lot of work to do. Well, let me interrupt you by talking a little bit about what's going on right now. There are a lot of people collectively who prefer a moderate or centrist candidate. You add them all up. It's more than the people who are into Bernie right now. But Bernie, for a lot of reasons, is lead- leading in the field. But it also seems to me that if you're talking about energy and if you're talking about activism and if you're Talking about going out there and campaigning for someone. Everything about Bernie lead you to believe, oh, I understand what to do as an activist to support that mindset. I'm not sure it's as easy for someone who generally believes in the whole group of moderates. So what do I do as an activist to not just support those specific campaigns, but that mindset? What do I do to advance those values and and, and champion them?
2: Yeah. So I think that mindset comes from forgetting, honestly, what politics is all about. I mean, in the book, I talk about how a lot of people have in their heads have politics in one sort of section of their head and community service, mm-hmm. service in another bucket. And those things are not supposed to go together. Politics is about Democrats fighting Republicans and service is about like building community. You know, they might be uh, on the PTA or something like that. And those things right. don't merge. But in fact, in all real politics outside of hobbyism, those things are kind of one and the same. That is, you serve your community through community involvement, by getting to know your neighbors, by doing favors for people. And that's also how you build political power. So, you know, I don't think it's complicated, for example, for someone who is involved in, say, school issues. You know, they're on the PTA and then they say, oh, okay, we also need to get this bond voted for. And so, okay, there's a real merging of making their schools better and electioneering. That kind of is the leap that we have to make collectively in politics, particularly for these moderates who think about politics as polarized fighting and service as something that they're more comfortable doing. The way to resolve it is
0: actually politics should be more like service. Aton Hirsch is the author of Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. It was a pleasure, Professor Hirsch. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. The median life expectancy of the candidates on the stage last night is one week, which sounds desperate until you realize the average lifespan of the American male is 76 years. And the three leading candidates, Bernie Biden and Bloomberg, all exceed that. So they're playing with house money, people. Bloomberg and Sanders are both 78. Biden is 77. Now, Biden had a fine night, but he did say some weird things like this exchange with Amy Klobuchar.
1: Forty-seven. I that wrote bill, that law along with. You didn't write that bill. I did I wrote write that bill. I wrote the bill, <laughs> the Violence Against Women Act, that okay, took you did that. out of the hands of people who okay, abused them. We'll her, have a we'll fact have, check look no, at this. No, let's look at the fact oh check. Goodness. The
0: only Thank thing you. that the boyfriend loophole wasn't was not covered. I couldn't get that covered. You, in fact, when you were in, as a senator, tried to get it covered, and Mitch McConnell is holding up on his desk right, right. now, and we're going to lose the Violence Against Women Act across the board. Add up that interruption. And what Biden was saying was not actually I wrote that bill, but I wrote that loophole. If only keeping guns out of the hands of angry husbands was the only thing covered. Guess who wasn't covered? Boyfriends. And guess when you call it when something is not covered in a bill? It is a loophole. So he wrote the boyfriend loophole. Biden also said this. Walking distance here is Mother Emanuel Church. Nine people
1: shot dead by a white supremacist. Bernie voted five times against the Brady Bill and wanted a waiting period. No, let me finish.
0: And waited, waited, a waiting period of 12 hours. I'm not saying he's responsible for the nine deaths, but that man would not have been able to get that weapon with the waiting period had been what I suggest until you are cleared. So Bernie voted against the Brady Bill or early versions of the Brady Bill. That is true. But he also voted for later versions of the Brady Bill. The bill that Sanders did vote for mandated a three-day period to do background checks before you issue a gun to someone who is buying one and authorities did the checks in the South Carolina purchase. They were, it was the FBI because South Carolina is one of those States that won't do the checks itself makes the FBI do it. And the FBI screwed up. This is documented. The FBI reported the wrong office of one of uh, the places where the South Carolina shooter was arrested. And if it had all gone properly, he would have been denied his guns. But just as we can't know what he would have done if there were a 10-day waiting period rather than a three-day waiting period. We have to be fair and say, even with a 10-day waiting period, we don't know that the FBI would have caught the mistake or that the shooter wouldn't have gotten his guns in some other way. So all of that, that critique, and it's a fair critique, and Hillary Clinton made it, and all the fact-checking sites rated it true or mostly true. But what it falls into is, I would say, highlighting a flaw or imperfection in Sanders' record. There are different flavors of flaw, and all the candidates have them. Biden favored some forms of segregation in the 70s, and Warren was a Republican, and Klobuchar let one prosecution go astray in Hennepin County, and Bloomberg oversaw a stop and frisk, and Buttigieg has a smug goddamn face. That's uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, I'm quoting there. And, of course, Tom Steyer, he took up all that time in the debate stage for no good goddamn reason. So what I'm saying is they've all got flaws. And the the point isn't that some flaws are worse than others because the mistakes were worse than others. I mean, one bad prosecution out of Klobuchar doesn't at all compare to hundreds of thousands of black and Latino kids stopped and frisked in New York versus Bloomberg. But the question is, how disqualifying are they not based on the enormity of the flaw, but based on how likely that flaw will be revisiting itself as the candidate or if the candidate were to assume the office of the presidency. I think a lot of Democrats look at Bloomberg and say, well, that's exactly what the flaw does. It is disqualifying because it shows the kind of policies he would favor. A lot of Democrats also look at Bloomberg and say his flaw is he thinks big business in search of profit maximalization is still a productive thing in America. Then again, there are a lot of other potential voters who say, well, I kind of agree with that to an extent, too. And maybe they also look at his proposed tax plan and say, all right, well, let's put whatever we think his policy towards big business, let's put that aside. The tax plan is very, very progressive. Maybe voters do the same with Sanders. And they say, well, he once opposed the strongest gun control legislation available, so therefore he'll be weak on guns. I don't really think anyone does that, though. I think the reason why the critique of Sanders was valid but not disqualifying isn't that it wasn't so bad it's just that it will not revisit itself in any way in the in terms of the policy that Sanders will pursue as president maybe they look at Klobuchar voting for Trump judges and they say oh here's someone who when she gets into office will vote for people or her version of Brett Kavanaugh but I think very very few people think this is the case so when you criticize klobuchar for being the senator who's running who voted for the most trump judges fact check true you're highlighting a flaw and it's a fair critique but there's it doesn't really have a bearing on what she'll do as president because there are a couple kinds of record vetting and background checks There are the ones that highlight imperfections, but those imperfections are not indicative of future actions. And then there are ones that raise legitimate concerns that demonstrate where the candidates really stand and the ones that make you wonder about the character of the candidate. Maybe the thing the candidate did is so personally odious that you could never vote for the candidate. Maybe that's Bloomberg and women in the workplace or Bloomberg and stop and frisk. And maybe, and this is the last category, there's the flaw that's not indicative of how the candidate will govern on that issue. But it's such a 180 or there are so many examples of that one flaw or many flaws or imperfections not being indicative of where the candidate is now. You begin to wonder about the candidate's honesty or the candidate's actual conviction or if the candidate is a good person. This all leads me. To Joe Biden, septuagenarian, Barack friend, but increasingly Gabby Hayes type figure. In his complaint to Major Garrett in a post-debate interview on CBS, he said this of Bernie Sanders and the vetting he's been getting.
1: That level not. of scrutiny. I'll lay you 8 to 5. No one knows he voted against the Brady Bill five times. I'll lay you 8 to 5. No one knows he voted. He supported
0: the gun lobby. Mr. Vice President... Lay you 8 to 5? I thought I knew all the gambling jargon. I understand what it means. Laying 8 to 5 means you bet 80, and then you pocket 130, meaning a profit of $50. What it's really saying is, I think there's a 61.5% chance that people don't know this. That's what eight to five is, a 61.5% chance. If this is an idiom, I am unaware of the idiom. But a thought struck me. Biden and Bernie are different types of old people. Bernie has the old man affect. Biden has the old man vocab. It's a little like Grandpa Simpson and Mr. Burns, the two classic old people on The Simpsons. Bernie is a little like Grandpa Simpson. Now, there are differences. Grandpa Simpson isn't a rabble-rouser, like Bernie is. In fact, Grandpa Simpson is, if anything, rabble-resistant.
1: Shut up! I wasn't done yet.
0: I'm just saying, we could blow all our money on a stupid little street, but... No! I ain't ferret, i am a to it. But Grandpa Simpson is an old person whose agedness is really familiar. He has aged in a familiar way. His personality is easily recognizable as one way that we know an old person acts. Joe Biden, on the other hand, says words that are unrecognizable because they are the words an old person says. And that's like how Mr. Burns says, Ahoy, Ahoy, or compares people today to stars of the silent screen or ball players from the dead ball era or says things like this. You're the brain pan of a stagecoach tilter. Which is the cousin of lying dog-faced pony soldier. Again, Biden says words from a bygone era. Sanders simply acts as if he's spent the last 77 years not being listened to. Damn it. Bloomberg also has some Mr. Burns to him. Of course, he's a billionaire. Stephen Miller by the way, is pre-Mr. Burns. Buttigieg, he's like Martin Prince begging for more homework. Elizabeth Warren, she's all Lisa Simpson, great super student who doesn't understand why no one gets it. Amy Klobuchar is a little bit of Marge Simpson trying to understand if the kids today still say cool. And Donald Trump is ever so clearly Homer Simpson, a lowbrow, overweight dunderhead who never faces the consequences of his action. How do we get to the Simpsons? Because where I really want to get to is my Muppet theory of the race. Here goes. In 2020, all argument and nuance has been reduced to the most easily recognizable iconography. Donald Trump is the most iconographic person ever to inhabit the presidency. Eh, maybe Taft. Donald Trump is a crude, simple figure who's easy to draw and can be conveyed with a couple strong lines and simple colors. A swoop of yellow, a field of orange, a lumpy circle. Now, if you were to cast all politicians in felt Donald Trump the most easily translatable into a Muppet. As for the Democrats, it's definitely Bernie. Bernie is the easiest to Muppetize. White hair, stooped, finger waving. The other candidates, they're just the Muppets who stock the background for the group scenes. We've seen them. According to Wikipedia, they are the whatnots. The whatnots are Muppet extras designed with blank heads and customizable faces, clothes, and hair that can be customized for different roles. So Klobuchar might have the most sane policy on war and health care, plus a proven track record of Midwestern. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's 2020. You got to answer, what Muppet are you? She's just a whatnot Muppet. And that's not Muppet enough for the moment. Sadly, we now have the most easily discernible, digestible, mean Muppet slash malevolent cartoon character ever in the White House. And it looks like the Democrats are going to have to fight this one out. Mono a mono, Muppet a Muppet. No puppet, no puppet.
1: It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty
0: clear. Not puppet, Muppet. And if the felt fits... And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the Gist associate producer. She says five will get you ten, that Maggie's back in town. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, isn't a real housewife hobbyist. He's a real housewife identitarian. The Gist. I say Biden's pulling to an inside straight, hoping his queens will hold up, given his kicker trouble, looking for an eight the hard way on the come. What I'm saying is, yes, it's still possible. Oomperoo Peru. and thanks for listening.